Hello, and welcome to Speaking Refugee, the Volner podcast. My name is Sham Jeff, and I'm happy that you're joining us again for the fifth episode of our podcast series in which we give the microphone to refugees to explore how they experience their vulnerability when seeking asylum. This podcast is part of the Volner Project, a research project that aims to understand the vulnerabilities faced by migrants to enable decision-makers to better identify situations of vulnerabilities and to address them. In the past four episodes of this series, we looked at the topics home, family, food, and gender, and we asked why and how they impact feelings of vulnerability among migrants and or give them strengths. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, I recommend you do that first. Today we are going to talk about another factor of vulnerability, health. As in our previous episodes, you will meet Gabriel, a former refugee, now teacher in a refugee settlement in Uganda, if people got COVID here, for sure, people would die. So we're like, we're no cases of corona. Fatima, a social worker in the MENA region. Currently in Lebanon, the health sector is one of the most challenging, I think. And Jamila, a refugee from Afghanistan, currently living in Belgium with her two kids. It was the goal to be in a safe place, no matter how my health was. How pregnant I am. Hello, I hope you're fine. Or I hope you are doing well. Or how are you? Are quite usual ways of greeting another person you meet or write to. And when someone celebrates their birthday, we wish them love, a happy time with their loved ones, and very often, good health. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Greeting and farewell phrases were once again more strongly characterized by questions about and wishes for the health of the people we encounter. Many of us witnessed how stressful an illness can be. Many have experienced great worries about their relatives and friends. Quite a few have lost someone they love to the virus. Having to worry about health is a constant source of stress and a source of vulnerability in the truest sense of the word. According to the World Health Organization, health is not merely the absence of disease and infirmity, but a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. So there's a lot to talk about today when we look at the different ways health can impact a person's feelings of vulnerability. In this episode, we want to explore how health, physical and mental health, has an impact on the lives of asylum seekers. The Volna Report on Lebanon, conducted by Shadn al-Daif, Maha Shu'aib and Maria Ma'louf, has a very useful pretext on the meaning of vulnerability and that we'd like to share with you. Vulnerability is not a characteristic of asylum contexts. The roots of this concept are in geography and natural hazards research, but now it is extensively used in other domains and research such as ecology, public health, poverty and development, secure livelihoods and famine, sustainability science, land change and climate impacts and adaption. 
The term vulnerability is generally used to refer to the condition of being particularly susceptible to harm, which can take the form of physical, mental or emotional vulnerability. Today we want to take a closer look, especially at those three aspects of vulnerability, physical, mental and emotional conditions that can shape a person's vulnerability in the context of forced migration and asylum seeking. First, we talked to Gabriel. He lives in Uganda in a settlement called Naki Valley. He works with refugees as a teacher. He teaches how to speak English, but more importantly, how to claim one's basic rights as a refugee. We asked him about health problems in the settlement. Yeah, that one is common here. Like of recent, I was treating typhoid. Then I was on medicine and it was like a month. What are the symptoms? I have never had typhoid. <laughs> like when you say you've never had typhoid, the people here can wonder how. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bacteria which can spread from one person to another, like in hands, which like people greet each other, like, and you forget and eat when you have not washed your hands. So you you get it. The symptoms, you feel weak, you want to sleep all the time, and high fever, confusions, you cannot do anything. As Gabriel said, typhoid fever is a bacterial disease caused by Salmonella typhi. Symptoms usually develop one to three weeks after exposure, and they include high fever, malaise, headache, constipation or diarrhea, rose-colored spots on the chest, and enlarged spleen and liver. Now, imagine feeling like this for a month. Typhoid fever is quite common in Uganda. They have had several outbreaks in the last five years. But it's not the only disease that haunts the country. Right now, at the beginning of November 2022, the country struggles with a new Ebola outbreak. More than 100 people have already been infected. The recent outbreak is caused by the so-called Sudan strain of the virus. Ebola has a death toll that's quite high. About 50% of the patients die. Now, the Ministry of Health has developed quite a competency in dealing with different kinds of diseases, and the government expects this outbreak to be under control by the end of 2022. This will be achieved by strict isolation of infected persons and the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Program, in cooperation with the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, will offer a vaccine to contacts of known cases as part of a clinical trial. The Ugandan Ministry of Health has implemented health guidelines that try to make sure that everyone gets the help they need. And that really accounts for everyone. In the Volner Report on Uganda, author Sophie Nakuera spoke to a country director for Medical Teams International, an NGO that partners with the state's Ministry of Health to provide access to health care, 
who explained how Uganda ensures to meet global standards. What happens is that WHO releases protocols. They are country-specific. In Uganda, the Ministry of Health has strong protocols and guidelines. The good thing is that Uganda is strong on integrating refugees within the national health care system. We meet the global standards because we follow the Ministry of Health guidelines. And the country director also explains how a person's health issues mandates intervention, irrespective of other elements that may contribute to putting them in a more vulnerable position than others. If someone is coming to the health center, they are vulnerable. We do not differentiate. We focus on the most urgent or emergency cases. In general, it is about saving lives. So, in general, Uganda aims at setting a high standard when it comes to health and disease control. But lack of resources often stand in the way of adequate medical intervention. In Gabriel's case, when he tried to get a treatment for the typhoid fever he suffered from, it was a bit complicated. Yeah, it is always difficult here because first we work for these organizations. We have medical insurance cards that we use, but it's unfortunate that um, here in the camp we don't have these medical facilities where these medical cards can work. So if you want to get treated with using those medical cards, you travel to a town called Imbarara. It is far from the camp. You have to use your money to treat yourself. To treat his disease, 10 injections of antibiotics were needed. They were quite expensive for him and his family. But he had to pay the price because he wanted to recover as soon as possible to resume his work. So typhoid fever is quite common in Uganda. But what about the coronavirus? Yeah, even you... my family had it. They, they had corona. They contracted it. His mother and sister live far away in Australia. They were lucky and recovered quickly after a mild course of the disease. Gabriel thinks that in the Uganda settlement, that story might have had a different outcome. If people got COVID here, for sure, people would die. Because first of all, that lockdown was a challenge to most people. Because here people eat after working. So you hand it to mouse. So if we're locked and you get sick, you are, go you are going to die. So we are like, there are no cases of corona. Refugees in the Naki Valley settlement were lucky because, according to Gabriel, there weren't any COVID cases. Many other settlements and camps were not that lucky. But overall, the death toll for COVID in Uganda is not as high per capita as in most European countries. Europe has had around 850 deaths per million in the last 12 months, Uganda only 8.9. In other words, during the last year, a hundred times more people died in Europe from COVID than in Uganda. But it could also very well be that the unofficial death toll, for example, in remote villages that have little to no access to medical support, is higher than expected. Still, 
COVID put a great risk on those most vulnerable in camps and settlements. And this was mainly due to the restrictions, like travel bans, supply shortages, and lockdowns. The Volna report on Uganda shows that a ban on public transportation hindered many people, particularly people with disabilities, pregnant women or the elderly, from reaching food distribution points, putting their health and well-being at risk. These are examples of how a public health crisis can intersect with other factors and circumstances that produce experiences of vulnerabilities, explaining how COVID-19 has exacerbated the vulnerability of certain groups, the aid worker said. One of the challenges I want to be very honest with you is that because of COVID, the vulnerability level of refugees have shot up. Now businesses are closed and children are not going to school. Education is very important for refugees. We will come back to that in our next episode. But closed schools were a problem all over the world. And as research showed, it was especially problematic for those who are already vulnerable. This affects the capacities of aid agencies that have a critical role to play in protecting particularly vulnerable groups, such as children and women who have been victims of sexual and gender-based violence, or short, SGBV. An SGBV aid worker in the Volna report on Uganda conceded that COVID has changed things. We are now overwhelmed. For many humanitarian organizations all over the world, this overwhelmingness has gotten worse by droughts, floods, or food shortages due to the war in Ukraine. A report by the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs states that in 2022, 247 million people need humanitarian assistance and protection. They say... This number is a significant increase from 235 million people a year ago, which was already the highest figure in decades. And there is another problem, the second pandemic, as some have called it, mental health problems. They have been rising during the last years all over the world. Uncertainty, economic hardship, health issues, and psychological stress factors, including fear and social isolation, they all have left their marks. The COVID-19 pandemic also brought with it depression and anxiety and other mental health issues. For many refugees, mental health has always been a real challenge. They have often had terrible experiences in their home countries, have seen war, hunger, or poverty. The loss or uncertain whereabouts of loved ones, the fear of not knowing how life will go on, or where, the dangers and threats on unsafe escape routes, all of this puts a strain on the psyche and causes enormous mental stress. In Uganda... One of the agencies that help refugees with mental health issues is Tutapona. Tutapona means we will be healed, 
and offers programs to this effect. They also work in Machiavelli, where Gabriel lives. To have any hope of living the lives we were created to live, we all need someone to show compassion, to walk with us, to help us, and to show us we're not alone. That's why Tutapona exists. In Uganda and Iraq, we provide mental health services to both adults and children who are living as refugees and internally displaced people after fleeing brutal wars in the Congo, South Sudan and Syria. Another organization in Uganda is Windle International. Their focus is on people with mental and physical disabilities, a category they refer to as persons with special needs. As the program manager explained to Sophie Nacuera, Within the refugees, there are those we consider more vulnerable, such as those with special needs. Some of these could have been caused by the past experiences in war, or they were born like that. He went on explaining that there were... Children that receive special needs education, these are learners who cannot go to our conventional schools because of mental or physical problems. Persons with special needs, they are children with difficulties. For example, the child is lame or has mental illness, where the condition puts the child in a state that they can't study in these normal schools. They can't sit in class. We take them to special schools. The program manager further explained that they collaborate with other partners in refugee settlements in identifying those with special needs. What stands out about their work is that they do not specialize on children with disabilities or physical problems, but also focus on children with mental health problems. There is also like a mental health gap in Syria because there are not enough mental health practitioners. This is Fatima. She works as a humanitarian aid worker in the MENA region, and she helped a lot of Syrian refugees. Fatima is from Syria herself. People specialized in mental health or like services or at the community level or at the specialized level. Because there is a stigma related to mental health in Syria. Coming to Lebanon, you know, um, engaging with uh, humanitarian aid actors through different programming and so on. We see now that, you know, a lot of participants actually ask us and they say, are there any psychosocial support services that you would provide to us? We are really under pressure. We really need help. So I think that is one of the major successes that the humanitarian um, aid actors did. Fatima and her colleagues tried to organize help and support on mental health issues as best they can. But in Lebanon, where she currently works, the overall government budget is tight. The country has seen many crises in the past years. The Volna Report on Lebanon, written by Shadn al-Daif, Maha Shu'aib, and Maria Malouf, states that especially those refugees living in tents or houses far away from other refugees face poverty. They also see a gap in age-specific services for older refugees, and they report several barriers to physical and mental health, bad access to medical care, and limitations on mobility and aid devices. 
currently in Lebanon, you know, like the health sector is one of the most challenging, I think, sectors. The economic crisis has affected people's ability to access social security or like, you know, insurance, you know, coverage has been also a question. And for many uh, refugees, they don't have even that access. The different organizations that try to provide health support for refugees cannot make up for the lack of financial support from the government. Many refugees are unable to find the medicine or treatments they need. Especially for people with chronic diseases who require continuous uh, medicine, they rely on those medicines on a daily basis, those who have cancer. And even in Lebanon, you know, access to cancer medication has been also like a major issue. As we have seen in our previous episodes, Lebanon struggles to provide their own population with basic supplies. There has been a food crisis due to climate change and the war in Ukraine. Lebanon has been a poor country even before the COVID-19 pandemic. The 2019 Multidimension Poverty Index for Lebanon revealed that 53.1% of all the residents in Lebanon were multidimensionally poor. The extreme poor amount to 16.2% of the population. It is quite understandable that a country that struggles with poverty in such dimensions and also has the highest numbers of refugees per capita is not able to fully support and provide foreign refugees with all kinds of medical services they need. But that has dire consequences, as Fatima told us. Kidney failure and, you know, like kidney treatment has been an issue, um, you know, cancer cases, disability, uh, you know, inability to move or have, you know, the right equipment to use that, uh, to use for, you know, movement. Many children with malnutrition have been identified and it is an increasing issue. Another problem for refugees in Lebanon is, as a vulnerable report mentions, the lack of legal residency. Around 62% of the refugees of another nationality above 15 years old, other than Syrian and Palestinian, lack legal residency. The lack of legal documentation results in a precarious situation for refugees and has detrimental impacts on their mobility, access to documentation and services, most importantly of which are healthcare and education. And Lebanese and non-Lebanese people with disabilities still face several barriers to accessing healthcare resulting in unmet needs and having a detrimental impact on their physical and mental well-being. This puts them at a high risk of exclusion from public and private services, of exploitation and of violence. This shows something important. We really need to talk about intersecting vulnerabilities when we talk about health. Remember the last episode about gender? We talked to Jamila, who came from Afghanistan with her little son, pregnant. She experienced several health problems because of her pregnancy. And she also mentioned her high blood pressure in our episode about food. It was the goal to be in a safe place, no matter how my health was, how pregnant I am. Jamila and other asylum seekers, some of them pregnant as well, 
were not able to decide what to eat and when to eat in the Belgium reception center. Even when the doctor told her she had to eat healthier food, uh, less salty, fat or sweet stuff, there was no possibility for her to change her diet or to choose for herself and her child. The key word here coined by a social worker in Belgium was food stress. And this food stress had an impact on Jamila's health condition too. Another intersection we can see is the one between the vulnerability of LGBTQ people and needing medical support, as Fatima told us last episode. Those who actually practice or like, you know, show uh, their identity, um, they, you know, like are treated in a, you know, like aggressive way or, you know, they suffer from harassment or lack of access to, you know, like uh, basic uh, services, including health services. And then there is this intersection we saw in Lebanon again and again in all previous episodes the lack of legal residency and therefore not having a safe home makes people more vulnerable. As we said earlier, refugees who have to live in tents face several barriers to physical and mental health. One more intersection was visible when we talked to Gabriel. Money. Money has its role to play as well. We will talk about this in our next and last episode on capital. All the different kinds of vulnerabilities are connected with each other. They can intersect. Problems with home, food, or capital can lead to physical and mental health problems. Let's sum up what we have learned so far. First, when we talked to Gabriel and looked into the Volner report about Uganda, we saw that Uganda has to deal with diseases like typhus or Ebola and that the Ministry of Health tries its best to supply its own population and also refugees with a good medical service. Second insight. The COVID-19 pandemic has left a mark. It made it harder to get medical support during the lockdowns, and it also left many people with mental health problems. Moving on to our third insight. Mental health has always been a struggle for many, many refugees. Many of them have had traumatizing experiences, either in their home countries or on their journey. The mental health support differs a lot from country to country, Lebanon, as in many other aspects too, struggles to help people with mental health issues, and Fatima's and other humanitarian organizations can only try to help as much as possible, not making up for the missing governmental support. And last insight? Vulnerabilities are interconnected. Many of the topics we focus on in this podcast, such as home, food supply, or support for women and girls can intersect with each other, and many of them lead to a vulnerability regarding their health. We could stop now and ask you to tune in next time, when we will be talking about money and capital. 
But as we are talking about health today, and as we see mental health as a very important part of this, we would like you to stay for a few more minutes as we broaden our approach this time. You probably know that one of the main threats to mental health is stress. In the process of asylum-seeking and accompanying refugees, helping them to get the support, protection, and services they need, many aid workers report suffering from stress. Most of them are very dedicated people who interact daily with people who are traumatized. And given that they have large caseloads and certain targets to meet, in addition to the stress of the work, many reported secondary trauma which they experienced personally from listening to stories of traumatized people all day long. A legal aid worker explained this feeling in the Volner report on Uganda. It takes a toll on my mental health in a way. They call it vicarious trauma. You find that they are narrating what they have gone through. Imagine in a case where a girl has been defiled. This girl tells you what they went through. And this is just one story. But imagine listening to many of those every day. Listening to them and you can't speed up the justice system. She went on to explain the effect. You start feeling that you are failing. These people are coming to you and you can't order the judicial officer to come. We owe it to Sophie Nakuera to also have an eye on the aid and street workers and the amount of responsibility and stress they often have to face. The problem is that overworking and stress make it harder for the people in charge to really help and pay attention to the more subtle and often overlooked facets of vulnerability. Sophie says... In my previous research, I noticed that when overwhelmed with numbers of clients seeking their help, some aid workers tended to resort to routinized practices in the execution of their tasks. So let's keep in mind that if we want to provide sufficient health care and support to people who are vulnerable, we need to also make sure that we help and support the helpers. This was the fifth of six episodes of Speaking Refugee, the Vulner podcast. In the upcoming episode, we will explore one last facet of vulnerability, capital. We will this together again with Fatima, Gabriel, and Jamila. We hope you'll join us again. My name is Sham Jaff, and thank you for listening. The Volner Project is carried out by an international research consortium involving partners from nine research institutions located in six different countries. It is financed by the EU under the Horizon 2020 Work Programme. This episode was designed by Haus 1, Karina Schröder, Sham Jaff, Katharina Alexander and Katrin Rönnecke, based on the input from the Volner team Susanne Höb, Luc Leboeuf, Zoe Green, Maria Malouf, and Sophie Nakuera. Editing and sound design, Karina Schröder. Script, Katrin Rönnecke. Music, 
by Blue Dot Sessions.